Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, Episode 12, Honor and Prosperity. Last time, we left Alfred Krupp as he had just finished dominating the fair in the Crystal Palace in London, and he was as emotional as he was ever going to get. The British citizenry were also moved by his gun and giant ingot. His name and what he could do was spreading throughout Europe. But there was something still missing in his life. Within his narrow chest, something stirred, and it didn't take him long to figure out what. His mother was gone, and his sister, who managed the Stammhaus, had moved on. Just as success was coming his way, Alfred was in want of a wife. That is not to say he spent his days walking in the fields, picking flowers, and writing poems. His house needed looking after, and that was woman's work. His passion was saved for his work, the Krupp concern. When I say his passions were stirred, I meant his passion for success. And success was coming Alfred's way, which only stirred him even more. In 1849, right before the London Fair, Alfred had perfected his cast steel axles and springs, and this allowed him to take advantage of the railroad boom that had just started. So, spurred on by his success, he rarely looked up from his ledger, or the latest blueprints from another addition to his factory, or another building. This drive, this focus, this manic resolution to succeed, couldn't help but slow down Alfred's other business venture, finding a mate. For a business venture, it was. But as Alfred had created a folder for it, like all his other dealings, this one, too, was concluded on April 24th, 1853. After the wedding, Alfred was ecstatic, again, as much as he could be. However, the bride, Berta Eichhoff of Cologne, well, her response to this successful courtship went unrecorded. But hey, this is 19th century Germany. Her feelings were not really that important. Alfred had just finished a contract in Cologne when he decided to take in a show. But having spotted the 21-year-old, fair-haired, blue-eyed lady of solid metal class, she was all he could see for the rest of the show. As can be imagined, she was unnerved by this older, angular man with a stern visage, who eyed her, probably without blinking. But again, it is his feelings that are important. He wooed her for a month, always pressing like any good businessman should, and reached his peak with this line, quote, Where I supposed I had nothing but a piece of cast steel, I had a heart. Unquote. Sheer poetry. And finally, she relented. Alfred was overjoyed. The people of Essen, mostly Crumpenier now, were equally overjoyed and were given a great Gustav Fabrik feast. Then, during the night, mortars were fired into the Ruhr sky, and below, torch-wielding Crumpenier marched through the streets. Teutonic fun at its finest. Although little is known of the first Berta Krupp, a picture of her speaks volumes. She has angular features and holds a steady gaze that pierces into the camera. She is strong, robust, even hard. But for whatever reason, she didn't realize this about herself. Had she not been made of so stern of stuff, 
Her mind and body would have not been able to survive the coming years with Alfred, much less their first week, by which time she had conceived their first child. Yes, Krupp closed that deal, too. But what Krupp, his family, and his household were about to find out was that Berta was a hypochondriac. Everyone readily recognized the symptoms. They had lived with Alfred for years. But for now, Alfred, with his growing business and new bride, simply did not have the time to hear those voices in his head that told him he was coming down with the latest whatever was making its way through Essen. But Berta had time. Through her whining and whinnying, it's hard to know how she really felt about her husband. But again, as it's 19th century Germany, but Alfred was certainly in love. He gave her everything she wanted and quickly agreed with her that the Stammhaus was much too small for them. So, soon after the wedding, they moved into a newly built garden house. As it was designed by Alfred, it was an oddly stacked, rambling building, but definitely a step up. Of course, it was built right in the middle of the works. So, although the garden house was surrounded by flowers, grapevines, pineapples, and of course peacocks, all this was surrounded by steam hammers, various buildings, the railroad factory, and dirty, sooty men. It meant little to Berta that the guard house faced away from the main factory. But Alfred was Alfred. His life was his work. He wasn't going anywhere. At the top of the garden house was a glassed-in crow's nest that allowed the master to view the factory gate to see which crumpineer were coming in late or leaving early. Both groups got the evil eye from Der Alta Herr, the old gentleman. But what mattered most to Berta was the soot. It was everywhere and got into everything, which only got worse as more factories were built. Then a night shift was added. So the steam hammers never stopped, and the smoke always shot out of the forest of chimneys. This was too much for the new wife's already frazzled nerves. Everything was covered in soot, like gray snow. The only time Alfred cared was when he couldn't see out of his crow's nest to give his tardy workers his evil eye. With each new building, more powerful steam hammers were installed. Soon the garden house itself shook from the nearby vibrations. Alfred cherished this proof of industry, while his wife reacted by taking down all her lovely glassware. It wouldn't have survived through a single shift. Then Bertha got to enjoy the other side of Alfred's personality. He was near his work, he was in love, so why would he ever leave home? Bertha, I'm sure, could have come up with a few dozen reasons. But Alfred was already set in his ways, and one of those ways was used to running everything and everyone around him. Soon, he was running his wife, after a loving fashion, about how to get better, as she was always sick, or at least claimed to be so. So, although a baby was quickly on the way, and Alfred professed perhaps too much, but that's how he did everything, his love for Berta the couple slowly grew apart. I'm not sure the busy Alfred noticed this, but he did notice his son, Friedrich Alfred Krupp, when he was born on February 17th, 1854. 
To celebrate, Alfred had the biggest steam hammer yet installed near the house. Then he had it manned 24 hours a day. That was it for Bertha. Taking counsel from whatever ailed her, real or imagined, Bertha would take great amounts of time away from the home, at various spas or on vacations, in an attempt to recover her nerves. However, complete rest was not possible, because the mail still ran, and Alfred still tried to run his wife's life through correspondence. And the height of this had to be when the loving husband, thinking only of his wife's nerves, created a form letter for her to use when writing him. All she had to do was circle the appropriate option for how she was feeling and how much she missed him, and voila, the letter was ready to be posted. That's love, most efficient. For Bertha, who spent so much time away from home, her life distilled down into the petty and superficial. Her days evolved around real or imagined spats with other spa guests, and her battles were waged over dinner tables and fashion selections. Alfred, the child, spent his time bouncing back and forth between his parents. When with dad, his every move was doted over. When with mother, he dissolved into a part of the background, as long as he didn't embarrass her. With such arrangements, it's easy to see Alfred as the victim, to take his side. He certainly loved Bertha passionately, and to prove it when working equally feverishly. He never hesitated to cancel appointments or meetings if she ever needed him, which was rare and grew more rare still. But as touching history, Alfred Krupp was at his best when he was on his own, and his work continued. What his wife could never understand, or would even want to try, was Alfred was still that gangly teenager the day his father was buried, and he rushed to the factory floor to meet the gaze of the few remaining workers. He could love and have a family, but he had to work. He had to honor his father and prove to his now-dead mother that giving him all was the best move for the family. And because there was no longer a father or mother to say, That's enough, Alfred. You've done fine. Calm down and go be with your family. He pushed himself to the limit. Although business was going well, his six-pounder still sat there, as no one had bought it or even placed an order for it. As the cannon became more of a memory, Alfred decided that if no one wanted to buy it, well, he would give it away. Do you think so? This is Alfred Krupp, after all. But on January 19th, 1852, for all intent and purposes, that is what he did when he made it a gift to the king of Prussia. And the king, quite amused but puzzled by this gift, decided it belonged in the marble hall of the Potsdam Stadtschloss. Did I mention that the king of Russia, Tsar Nicholas I, was about to make a state visit, sure to walk through the marble hall? No? Alfred was playing a deep game. Loyalty to king and country was all well and good, but business was business. Sure enough, the Tsar saw the cannon, was impressed with it, and in time, Alfred would indeed reap benefits from this gesture. But in the short term, he found an ally much closer to home.
One day soon after the Tsar walked by the Potsdam cannon, another old patriarch-slash-soldier was walking in the marble hall when his eyes fell on the gun. But unlike Nicholas, this man stopped and admired its craftsmanship and its obvious strength. Wilhelm Friedrich Ludwig von Hohenzollern, known to the world now as Wilhelm I, the predecessor of Wilhelm II, who led Germany during the Great War, stated he had to meet the man who made this marvel. Alfred was delighted and let the prince, brother of the king, know that he was welcome to visit the factory any time he so chose. Alfred might have been delighted, but many, including influential politicians, would not have been. The king's brother still had blood on his hands from the Berlin rioting of March 18, 1848. He had been in charge and people had been killed. But as Alfred's fortunes were on the upswing, so too were the princes, or should I say, the crown prince. Friedrich Wilhelm, the current ruler, was childless, and had begun to show signs of senility or madness. Either way, the once butcher of Berlin was now the next in line to the throne. And the prince was as good as his word. He made his visit, found everything to be perfect, of course, what else would you expect with a crump in charge? And discovered that where he thought he had a heart was really a piece of cast steel. As his brother's mind would only last for about another five years or so, there was an unspoken understanding between the steelmaker and the man waiting to jump into the throne like the saddle of his warhorse. To seal the deal, the prince awarded Alfred the Rotter Alder Orden, the Order of the Red Eagle, fourth class. In reality, it was a royal promise. After the crown prince's visit, winning fairs in Germany became routine for Alfred. In 1854, he won ribbons in Munich and Dusseldorf. These were nice, and he put them next to his gold medal from London and his Red Eagle. But what Alfred was aiming for next was to win the coming Paris World Exhibition. France's answer to London's Crystal Palace. So, first thing, he acquired an agent in France and told him not to spare any money, wait, was this crop? Or men, in making sure he had the best of everything. Because what Alfred was planning for Paris would make his London entry look like a sideshow. Finally, the big day arrived and everything was in place. The judges started their walk around the exhibits. As they got to Krupp's ingot, they found themselves marveling at it. And they should. It was a hundred thousand pounds of perfectly cast steel. Before anyone could speak out loud, the wooden floor started to creak. This made the judges whisper in excited tones all over again. But as the judges got closer to it, the creaking changed to cracking. Before anyone could marvel further, the floor gave way the ingot disappeared through it, through the basement below, and finally stopped only when it hit solid earth. Fortunately, the judges managed not to follow the monstrosity through the hole. Proving their worth as judges, and they should have gotten their own medals for this, they all went down to see the wreckage. The ingot was just fine, thank you very much, but all else was in splinters. The judges awarded the metal giant first place, right there on the spot. Alfred, on receiving this news, nearly fainted. 
But if he had managed to maintain his composure, he probably could have heard them cheering all the way in Essen. Bravo, bravissimo, and whatever French words mean, wow. Before the cheers died down, Krupp was on the road, but not to Paris. As far as he knew, there were several murder charges waiting for him across the border. No, instead he was heading pell-mell for Piermont, his wife's latest spa. But he didn't want consolation. He was now its latest patient. But what we in the modern world know as the maxim, there's no such thing as bad press, only slowly dawned on the future canon king. As the spectacular reviews reached him, suddenly the head of freed Krupp of Essen didn't need to take a cure. He was cured. As at London, there were those who criticized Krupp's cast steel. But this time, the experienced German was ready. Before long, Paris was the first to see Alfred's latest cannon, a 12-pounder. Truly shock and awe. And its biggest fan was none other than Napoleon III, the leader of the French, who wanted this exhibit to demonstrate France's greatness. And, like his more famous family member, Napoleon III was an artillery enthusiast. The French leader then had the cannon weighed. It was 200 pounds lighter than a bronze cannon of the same caliber. But that was just the beginning. He then asked if he could have it tested at Vincennes. Alfred's agent could only say, We? The 12-pounder was fired 3,000 times, but its bore wasn't even scratched. On the spot, Napoleon made Alfred a chevalet de la Légion d'honneur. But that was the leader's enthusiasm. The French officers wanted to see just what it would take to burst the barrel. Alfred, upon hearing this, replied, well, whatever the German is for, like hell you will. But its destruction never took place. The officers weren't that interested. Besides Napoleon, every French officer who had seen the demonstration still, get this, was wedded to bronze cannon. They might not have learned anything, but Alfred did. Soon, the royals or leaders of Switzerland, Austria, and Russia received Krupp cannon, free of charge. The first two countries responded, as did the French. Well, that's unique. Okay, in what museum should we put it? But in Russia, that cannon had a distinguished journey. The generals of Tsar Alexander II fired the cannon 4,000 times, blasting to smithereens everything they could find. The cannon was then minutely examined, not a single mark on the inside. Amazed, they all acknowledged that a bronze cannon would have been made worthless even before the test was over. Then they all agreed something had to be done with this piece of weaponry. And it was. It was shipped to the Artillery Museum of the Fortress of Peter and Paul, and it was to be preserved and labeled as a freak. Their words. Greetings, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that. Um, I know it had a little more romance in it than usual, but we're going to get back to the uh, the history part of Krupp as soon as we can. Um, I just wanted to point out two things that I wasn't sure how to fit into this um, to this episode. One, when um, 
Alfred and his wife moved out of the Stamm house. It was preserved. And just to make sure that the, the Krumpeneer knew that the Krupps had started out just as humble as them, there was a sign put on the Stamm house that literally said, this is to prove we started out and that we were at one time just as humble as you are. So make of that what you will. And the second thing is that when the crown prince visited the factory, it was indeed an honor for Alfred, but it was also an honor for the crown prince. No one since 1844 had been allowed into the factories unless they worked there because he was so obsessed with spies, imagined or real, anybody trying to steal his uh, secrets. It's, it's safe to say that Willy Wonka himself could have learned a few things from Alfred Krupp in keeping his factory shut up tight. 